This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. This is part two of my ongoing conversation with the one and only Chris Connolly. The last time Chris and I spoke, my goodness, we went back in time and we got to the point where Chris had arrived in America, in Chicago, hanging out with the folks of Wax Tracks. And I'm going to let Chris continue on with the story. Chris, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Hello. Yeah, so uh, we, we are in Chicago for the first time. And um, I was picked up at the airport by Danny Flesher uh, and Al Jurgensen. And that in itself was really a scene, a circus. There was just the two of them. Danny had a gold Jaguar car. <laughs> and, you know, I was this kid on the dole in Edinburgh. And I was picked up by this cool guy who didn't say much, but had shades and smoked cigarettes. That was Danny. He just chuckled like <laughs> and Al the first thing he did I'm jet lagged from a flight I just walk off and Al has a Sony Walkman with a you gotta listen to this song now <laughs> and he couldn't get it to work so there's customs guards and everything around he just takes the Walkman and starts smashing it against a pillar in the airport to make it work <laughs> what have I done um but that night he took me out to uh, a couple of different bars and they were playing the Finney Tribe's last single. And I was just blown away that, you know, any A, anyone was playing our records and B, yeah. it was in public and people were dancing to it. It was a big deal for me. And, you know, that single got into the Rockpool dance charts and stuff. And it was having been pretty much ignored for eight years in the UK. This was really something else for me. It was a real, uh, a real trip. Uh, yeah. And um, so I was in Chicago for two weeks. I learned uh, all about Al's world, the West <laughs> world. And that was to me, it was a complete bubble, but I didn't realize that outside of this bubble was America. I just thought, oh, Everybody thinks David Lynch is awesome and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's absolutely fine to be gay. And um, yeah, uh, you know, because everybody I came into contact with was an artist. Basically. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I went back and we we ended up recording together. Uh, some stuff that would end up, end up on the Revolting Cox, Beers, Tears and Queers album a few years later. <laughs> And that was a real experience, too, because it was the first time I'd worked really with a producer. Ah, right. Yes. And the difference being with the Finney tribe, everything was, you know, it was done democratically. We'd work out what we're going to do in the studio and do it and try and troubleshoot it before we went in because time was tight, money was tight, and we wanted it to be a democratic um, product. Um, working with Al, he made all the decisions and I was not used to this at all. Like at first I'd say, oh, maybe the snare should be a bit louder. And then I realized after a while, it's like, you're here to be a singer. Like, you know, you're here to play Hamlet. Don't give a toss what the curtains are doing. Right. And that, that was a great lesson for me because it taught me, uh, taught me my place <laughs> but it taught me that when you're working with a producer listen because they have a grand vision that you might not have and they want to use you for something that you might 
not see right now, but they do have a vision. And Al did have a vision, you know, and it was the end products were always like louder and bigger than I could ever conceive. So I, I thought, well, yeah, this guy and Paul Barker both know what they're doing here. So I'll just do what they suggest and we'll uh, take it from there. Did that take too? It got loose because of the amount of yes, right. But at the time, Chris, you weren't used to that, as you say, because it was a democratic situation with Finney Tribe. So, not only was it surprising for you, but you had to sort of learn to keep your place, as you say. But was it immediately? Was it difficult for you? Were you were you sort of jumping in, and and as you say, the the snare should be louder or whatever? I mean, I'm just curious to know how how much you had to sort of hold back. Well, I, I I did jump in because I didn't realize that that was the situation. Al, I didn't know how Al worked necessarily. And being that young, I didn't actually know what a producer did. Right. And a producer's role, depending on the sort of style of music you're doing, you know, the producer can be the person who hires the musicians, hires the orchestra, everything. The producer yes. can write that middle eight. Uh, you know, there's lots of different roles. And a producer to me at that point was, you know, Adrian Sherwood, which served me well because yes. Al had worked with him as producer and learned. I mean, Adrian mentored Al in many, many respects. So I knew that much. But at the same time, I didn't know what Al expected of me at that time. I didn't know if he wanted me to help him build the song because, yes, he wanted me for a singer. But in the Finney tribe, I played in every instrument. We all swapped instruments and stuff like that. That's just what we did. So yeah, I I I did. And he wasn't like, he didn't ever say, oh, do you sit down and shut up and just let me do no. this. He didn't. Yeah. He listened. And sometimes he would try things out. Uh, I mean, he was young as well. And he was just getting used to being a producer in a sense. Um, yes. But yeah, uh, but I, I soon learned that he took his time in the studio it, way longer than I could ever conceive of. And it was best to let him do what he did and just sit there and wait. Now, you just told that story about him meeting you at the airport and having a Walkman that didn't work or wasn't. He couldn't get it to work and he's bashing it against the yeah. wall. You also told a story in our last conversation about how you were going to do some recording that. um at Sherwood Studios, and Al said, let's go and have a drink first. And you came back and you were completely drunk. So having said those couple of things, so you had, I'm presuming that you had some preconceived idea about working with Al and just being around the man at the time. And and I'm sure a lot of people are interested to know, how did did that appear to you? Because you didn't with the Finney tribe. Yeah, you didn't work like that. So, and, and Al has a reputation for working for being a bit of a crazy guy. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Finney tribe, we weren't crazy like that. But at the same time, we we like to party and yes. like to yeah. have fun and stuff like that. And you know, we were of that age that anyone, whether they're in a band or not, whether you're a college student, some afternoons you will just go out and buy a bottle of wine and sit in the park <laughs> and join, you know. Yeah. And yeah, that yeah. Was us, you know, that's what we did. We're like on the doors, like let's get some cheap champagne and go and sit on a roof. Yes. Uh, but Al was 
working and doing this. And that was a little bit new because the Finney tribe, we tended to go into the studio with our plan and our allotted eight hours. That was all we could afford. We got to record the song, mix it and walk out at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, so we really rehearsed hard, went in there. One of the best, not to digress too much, but one of the best musical lessons I ever had was working with Dale Griffin from Mot the Hoople. Right. He produced the first Finney Tribe BBC session. And, uh, you know, we went to Maida Vale and recorded a session. We had the allotted union time to record 15 minutes of music. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. That was it, yeah. And Dale Griffin was a very laid back guy, but he worked us hard and he recognized we were young. And we also had practiced so hard. We met and it worked like a charm, except we played everything in double speed. We were so nervous. I mean, <laughs> I was still in high school. Yeah. Um, but w- that was that was working with a BBC producer. And, right. But that was like all time constraints. And it was like, we knew not to question miking techniques or anything. We played the songs live. He mixed them. Bam. Al would take ages, play games like like a kid, take drugs, turn everything up, mess with stuff and just have a good old time while he was doing it. And uh, you had to work at his speed or it would work. And that was one of the things, that was one of the uh, uh, the the failures of of uh, many of his sessions was that people couldn't keep up with them and they'd end up throwing up on the floor and things like that. And just, he would just keep going. He has an insane, one of these people that just has an insane capacity uh, for staying awake and consuming and just, he won't fall asleep. He'll just keep going. He was oh, very driven. So there was the drugs and there was the project and, um, you know, he was in his own world. Uh, And at the same time, for the most part, I'd say 70% of the time, there was the wisecracks. He would entertain everybody at the same time as twiddling knobs, unless he was in a bad mood. He would uh, somehow manage to keep the atmosphere light by doing like Al Pacino impersonations or whatever, you know, he would just have us all in stitches, Uh, but he was the magician. And uh, then there was Paul who was not the drug consuming person at all. He just kept, made sure that everything kept on track and also made sure that if a great sound was being approached, he would work to enhance it and make it even better. And that's why these guys worked so well together. Chris, I, I want to do what we did last time, and that's ask you to choose some music as we're talking to sort of drop into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Choose some music right now. And when we when we return from the music, I want to ask you about something which we haven't touched on at all. And that is, so here you are in Chicago. You were on the dole in Scotland. Money, finances had to have been a little bit of an issue. I want to talk about I want to talk about that after right. we hear some yeah. music. What are you going to choose for us? Have I have I chosen Mark Stewart and the Mafia pacification program yet? You have not, but what okay. a great idea. First oh, track yes. on yes. as the veneer of democracy starts to fade. Got it. Yes, indeed. Let's hear that right now. When we come back, 
talking to Chris Connolly. This is our part two of our ongoing conversation. And we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about yeah, finances. Man. Yeah. Right <laughs> after this.
If you're just joining us, my guest is Chris Connolly. This is my ongoing conversation with Chris. Uh, I should let you know that Chris has a, a new album out with Monica Queen. It's called The Birthday Poems. And if you haven't got yourself a copy, please do get yourself a copy of this album because it, it really is good. And Chris and I talked about this a couple of months back. But let's continue on with this conversation. Wonderful music there from Mark Stewart and the Mafia. I loved what what Mark did when that came out, when that that album first came out. It was it was such an important album to me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about money because okay. here you are, here you are in in Chicago. You've come from from Scotland, over from, from Scotland. You didn't have a salary coming in. You were living on the dole. Yeah. And yeah. This had to be a whole big issue for you about uh, about how to afford things, about what to do. How did that, that all work? And when did money start to happen for you? When did it start to sort of actually actually come about? Um, well, you know, when I first uh, when I first came to Chicago, I, you know, I didn't really need any money at that time. I was there for a couple of weeks and uh, I got free drinks and stuff like that. Um, when I got back to Edinburgh, actually, it's a, it was a real bone of contention because there was nothing to be had. There was no, in fact, uh, I think it was at that time, uh, right about then, that the DHSS went on strike. And wow. yeah, and that I think was sort of like early summer 1986. And, you know, I can't remember if that's what happened, but we weren't getting gyros. We weren't getting our dough checks. And um, it was just miserable. I mean, we just, there was no, no money, nothing. I mean, there was nothing in my pockets. And so we were like trying to, me and my flatmates were trying to sort of make bread. And, you know, we were just yeah. impoverished. And, uh, you know, uh, I remember there was, uh, I feel badly about this, but there was a corner shop near my house that always had the vegetables and fruit outside. And I got really adept to taking a running sprint, <laughs> grabbing a cabbage and like keeping on running. So yeah. I remember living on flour and cabbage. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, I, this is not, this is not, uh, you know, uh, East Germany, nineteen, you know, in the nineteen sixties or anything like that, and this yeah. is not, you know, Syria or anything like that. This is affluent Edinburgh. I am not whining. It's my, it's my, it's a me problem. But uh, you know, I was so resolute in staying on the dole so I could work on the band. Uh, and um, they were starting all these things at the time, sort of restart and uh, campaigns like that to make it look like the unemployment figures were going down. Yeah, yeah. So you had to pick your job center, pick the most ridiculous job that you could find and apply for it so you could keep, you would fail that and they'd keep giving your money. Like helicopter pilot. Yeah, I'd like to do that. <laughs> and like, go do that. I mean, I remember getting an interview to be a psychiatric nurse. <laughs> <laughs> and what was so great was I put on this badly, badly fitting suit that was too small. And when I was getting off the bus, the pants ripped right down. The, so I showed up for this interview with a shaven head and a <laughs> suit. 
And they must have thought I was an escaped patient or something like that. I don't think this job is for you. But then, you know, someone from the doll would come and visit your uh, your house. And like, so have you been looking for jobs? Yeah, look, that psychiatric nurse. Okay, you can keep claiming unemployment benefits. But it got to the point where I couldn't stand it anymore. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was around the time I made my mind up to move to America because it seemed... Yeah. And it... It was, and I, mean, I was an illegal alien, but I worked under the table at the record store at Wax Tracks. Uh, yeah. Did a little construction, and um, eventually, um, from gigs, we'd get money. And I mean, yeah. like for me, a few hundred bucks. I mean, when with the Finney Tribe was like a warm beer if you were lucky. You know? <laughs> so you're lucky, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So getting a few hundred bucks was great rent for a month, you know. Yeah. But what I did find. Uh, in these early times of touring and recording was that there were no, uh, what do you call it, retainer fees or anything like that. That was not right. Yes. So between tours was still, it was lean because you couldn't get consistent work because you were going on tour for two months uh, or you were recording all night. You couldn't work during the day. So I had, it was uh, feast or famine for years, you know. I'd have a great time on tour. You didn't need to spend money. I'd save enough for rent for a little while. But then, you know, it was like, can you make this can of soup last for three days? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think, you know, the, one of the reasons I asked you that question about finances, about money at that time, is that I think there's a lot of, lot of listeners that, some aspiring musicians as well that that maybe don't realize just how tough it could be and tough it has been. Do you think it's the same thing today? I think it prob I think it probably is. Oh, it has been. I mean, it's funny. Every time I read books and things like the other day, I was just le reading an excerpt from from this uh, autobiography I have about John Cale. Oh right. And, you know, when I was a kid, I just thought anyone who had records out and played concerts was rich. Yes. I just did. And I was reading this bit in John Cale's book about when he moved from L.A. to England, uh, when he sang to Ireland, he was penniless, like he had nothing. And then there was that time when um, Lou Reed signed to Arista uh, after RCA again. Penny, he had nothing and you know when Bowie first went to Berlin they had to ration out his money yes and um you know there's that famous story about him buying a sweater and Coco Schwab his assistant getting really mad at him because like that's our food money for the next week David yeah. yes you know? yeah. and so it's a myth it is a myth and I get really tired because it's still a myth that's propagated today when you know friends of mine who are working musicians and really struggling like oh you're a musician you know <laughs> you know but well, yeah. it's, it's hard not everyone is on you know it reminds me chris of the story and i think i might have told this story before uh, about my good friend the late ian mcclagan i went to art school with Ian, of course From small faces faces and played with the rolling stones and I remember him telling me just before he, I did the last interview before he died, he told me that when he joined the fa the Small Faces, he asked for thirty pounds a week from Don Arden, who was the manager at the yeah. time, and the rest of the band were getting twenty pounds a week. So he thought he was really rich by getting thirty thirty quid a week. And then when I did this interview with him, this was a couple of years ago now, but just before he died. 
he was knocking on the door of 70 and he said to me, Norman, you're not going to believe this. I just got a mortgage for my very first house. And he said, by the time I pay it off, I'll be 90 something. Well, of course, the poor fellow went and died a couple of weeks later. But here we are. A man that had been touring with the Rolling Stones, who's one of the most famous bands ever, you know, the faces, small faces, and never could afford to buy a damn house. Incredible stuff. You know, well, you know, there's another story. Uh, he played on Tattoo You. Yes. And he has to get paid for the session. Jagger gave him change, like gave him 10 yes. cents or something. Like, That's all I've got. That yes. was his fee for... Yes. Tattoo you by the Rolling Stones. Yeah, it's a myth, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy stuff. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. So here you are in, in, in Chicago, and you're, you're hanging out with people at Wax Tracks. You've done some recordings with Al Jorgensen. Um, what happens next? And, and, and at that particular moment in time, and, and this is over a period of time, of course, but for you, for Chris Connolly, was it now you, this was the path was set for you? You know, you, you had some ambitions when you had Finney Tribe, but now you were, you're in America and you're yeah. in, in quotes, the rock and roll business, albeit yeah. alternative rock and roll. But so was the path now set for Chris Connolly? It, it, it was getting there. I mean, it was hard to say goodbye to the Finney Tribe. And I had some cockamamie idea of uh, continuing to work with them, but which these days would probably be possible with computers and stuff. But, you know, we just ended up having a discussion and they went their way, I went mine. And um, it started to pick up uh, velocity and traction pretty quickly with touring recording schedules. And that was a busy time. And at the time I came, Al's and ministry star was on the ascent. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, this was right before um, the land of rape and honey came out. And when that came out, it was a game changer uh, for everyone involved. And it was sort of like the first album of this genre that, you know, I think Sire put it out because they kind of had to. And then as soon as it started selling, they started to take notice. Um, Things really started to change for me when we started work on The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste. Yes. That's when it was really gaining traction, but it also became super unfocused as well and started to get wobbly and uh, the drugs started to get more intense. The solidifying factor was when we toured that record. That was... Yes. Um, that's where it sort of plateaued in a sense. That's where it all started to make sense because you, I actually was seeing the audiences who were responding to this music and this music to me was uh, still fresh sounding and I could, I could relate to it in so many different ways because it borrowed from uh, things like Killing Joke and Can and Public Image and became something new and fresh. And so at that point, there was now an audience for it. Whereas before it seemed like we were experimenting and they sounded great, but who's going to listen to this kind of stuff really? Um, it, it took a leap forward then. And that that's when I sort of decided that I was staying and going to do this for as long as I could. But boy, was I wrong. I mean, it kept changing, you know, as yes. it should, but it wasn't, 
nothing's ever an upward trajectory, you know, it's, whoa. <laughs> so the working relationship at that time with Paul and with Al and whoever else was involved at that moment in Bill. time. Yeah. Of course, Bill, of course, yes. Was it co cohesive? I, I mean, did you guys, you, did you, were you hanging together? How, how did all that work? <laughs> Yeah, we were hanging together. We did a lot of things together, a lot of social time together. I was at Al's house a lot. Yeah. Um, in the studio, we had the best intentions, in fact, with with uh, Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste. We wanted to, because the album before was very piecemeal, we wanted to go into a rehearsal space and try and figure out stuff to do in the studio. And that didn't really that came to nothing. So we booked studio time and went in and uh, we would do things in shifts, you know, um, different people had different things going on in their lives, but it would be yeah. a 24 hour cycle. Uh, so I would drop in for as much as I could stand and then go. And then maybe Paul would be in in the morning and Al would do all night, you know, uh, there wasn't a rigid timetable because there was no songs written. There was no game plan really. Yeah. The game plan we came, up with went out the window before we even set foot in the studio really T to my mind that's what it seemed like yes. no matter i mean it didn't matter anyway this was at the time where when we we would just churn out music and it wasn't all ministry music this is when we did all the side projects too right but, um, you know the the fact that we did it here meant that you know, Sire, Sire Records was picking up the tab for all these other records that were coming out in different labels. Yes. <laughs> and they just thought we worked really slowly, but we were just lying. <laughs> Who were you working with at Sire Records at the time? Do you remember? Was it Howie Klein? Yeah, it was Howie. Yeah. 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 I, didn't, yeah. I didn't interface with the label very much at all. Right. Well, right. if I wanted free CDs, I would call them off. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, that, that's right. And it was always like Al made the relationship with the label contentious because, you know, he felt he had to. It's like, it's yes. Oh, you know. Yes. Um, and, you know, I understand where he's coming from. I mean, labels have ideas about things and Al had other ideas. About ideas. It. Yeah. Yeah. But he'd been proven. And I don't blame him because, you know, they kept sort of, uh, the album that before, like they were not supportive of this album at all. They right, and then it came out and it gathered traction, and it was like, "Told you so." Yeah, this is what people want to hear right now, and it set the stage for all these other bands and things like that. Um, so yeah, uh, Sire Records, and we would uh, record all these things that we put out on wax tracks, and then the Palehead record with Ian Mackay. That was all right. Yes, yeah. yes. Did Sire at the time, this being the major label, did they ask you guys to do certain things to go on? I, I guess when you went and go on promotional tours, not necessarily playing, but just go around to radio stations and whatever, because there was a lot of interest at that moment in time in college radio. Yeah, we did that. Uh, we did that a lot on tour. And uh, I remember in Chicago, like Al and me would go down, went to a couple of different radio stations and talked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we played the game and Al played the game a little bit. Uh, and if, if, if I was asked by 
Paul or Al to do something, I'd do it. The label never got in touch with me for anything. Ah, like okay. Yes. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was well out of it. But I remember when we're on that tour, uh, what's his name? Dave Kendall from 120 Minutes. He came down and uh, interviewed the band for that show. And All right. Yeah. There was other stuff that happened uh, along the way as well. It was... Yeah. Definitely, there was it was that kind of genre 120 minutes. There was definite interest, yes. And right. we made videos, you know, we made a video for uh Burning Inside, yeah, that album, and that was like a two, three day affair. Uh, it was very hard work. Um, but it was all all the artistic stuff was on Al's terms. I mean, we would choose the director, he would choose the directors, and we would do what was within the band aesthetics. Nobody from the label really had the courage to interfere. Ah. And they weren't here. They weren't in Chicago, you know. So I think they flew in at the end of the album for a listening party. I seem to remember that was very uncomfortable. And I'm sure, yes. <laughs> so, so the artistic direction and control was pretty much in the hands of Al at that time. Mm -hmm. Yes. yes. Al Alan Paul. Alan Paul, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. like titles of songs and titles of albums, I think it's it's would be right of me to say, were deliberately provocative. Yeah, yeah. And that was Alan Paul. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, the songs I wrote, I I mean, Al would usually title things, uh, and but I, I didn't. We would work on lyrics together. He would yeah. come up with suggestions, what he wanted to write about, and I'd try and put that into verse for him. He didn't really mess with what I was writing at all with at all but I knew what he wanted and it was provocative sure my guest is Chris Connolly and we're this is part two of an ongoing series of conversations and we're catching up on on the life of Chris Connolly in some respects here we took a break to have some music let's take another musical interlude and when we come back from this one I want to talk about um about life for Chris Connolly, uh, adapting to America. And we'll do that after we hear another piece of music. All right. What are we going to hear? What are we going to hear? Uh, I had an idea. Oh, um, Time is Money Bastard by the Swans. Oh, the Swans. Oh, gosh, I've got so many questions to ask you about the Swans. Ah, <laughs> oh, time. Yes, indeed. Here we go, the Swans. This is Life Elsewhere. <laughs>
If you're just joining us, my guest is Chris Connolly. This is part two of an ongoing series of conversations I'm having with Chris. We just heard another selection from Chris. The swans there. The swans always come up in my list of all-time favorite bands. I'm just, I'm just going to sort of talk about that just for a minute before we get to talking about you in America. Talk to me about the swans and about your appreciation of the swans. Uh, I discovered them very, very, you know, close to the beginning of their career. And they've always been a favorite band of mine. And I'm friends with Michael. Okay. Uh, I've known Michael for years. And Bill, of course, was uh, uh, yes. uh, a non-touring but very active member of the Swans. Uh, Bill... I think, I can't remember what album we were doing in the studio, what Ministry album or Cox album it was, but he said to me one day, he said, I really want to play with the Swans. I'm going to get in touch with them. And he just got in touch. They did, yeah. Started a friendship with Mike. Yes. Um, but uh, these, the, the record that did it for me was Cop. Uh, when that album came out, it was, you know, it was, I hadn't heard it and it was described to me. <sighs> Uh, the loudest, slowest record you'll ever hear. It's something else. And I got the Young God EP before that. Yes. And I was just, I first I thought, is it on the wrong speed? Yes. You know, like you do. And yeah. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I just love that record. And then the subsequent 12 inches, like Time is Money, Bastard, Holy yes. yes, Greed. That was just a wonderful, how fresh, how new sounding. And I saw them, they came to Edinburgh and played... Uh, the first time they played Edinburgh was for um, the double album, Children of God. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I, and Michael Gira was dressed in a kind of diaper on stage and nothing else. And he was doing somersaults back and forth. And there was a wall of noise and beer glasses just like. <laughs> I, 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 it was just mind blowing. And uh, that was the first night I spoke to um, uh, the guitarist, uh, super skinny guy, can't remember. Norman. Oh, I know who you mean. Yes, um, yeah. and we're still friends. I still, he's a really sweet guy. He lives in Norway now. Um, but that was the first night I spoke to Norman, and then I, I became friends with Al Kesey's, the bass player, who's from right. Chicago. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I love the Swans, and they continue to evolve for me. Uh, and I saw them several times, and. Uh, always a wonderful experience you know yes have you heard i'm sure you have um their cover of love will tear us apart oh sure yeah 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 of course i yeah. actually was listening to that recently yeah um yeah and that was a funny era for them well you know um bill's in that documentary uh and i'm friends with the guy who made the documentary on the oh. and which yes. is absolutely probably my favorite music documentary ever it's just so well done it's beautiful and what an insight what a story crazy life he's had <laughs> you know it's great we went off on a tangent but i think a worthwhile tangent i love talking about music that i love yeah. as well so yeah i i, I want there's a question i'm going to ask you in a minute but we let's go back to the question oh. that i prefaced and that is about chris Connolly. Now in Chicago, now now playing, recording with the Revolting Cox or making music as Revolting Cox and Ministry, amongst others. So for Chris Connolly, was what, what was it like adapting to being 
in America, you, you, you now had gotten into the flow of things, how things worked here, living here, partying here. Yeah. Um, so, so for Chris, the, 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 the whole idea of being in America at this point, you, you were totally immersed in it, totally enjoying it. Yeah, yeah I was. And I was also totally in a bubble. Um, so my life was wax tracks. And doing what every other guy in the twenties do does go out and drink and party and stay up late and uh, you know I was doing that and I was doing it here in America and there seemed to be a lot more freedom uh, to destroy yourself. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about Edinburgh. I mean, I'm not necessarily. It's not necessarily uh, what I'm saying is necessarily true because you can really mess yourself up in Edinburgh too, but. Um, there, it was just easier here. There was places to rehearse. There were people to work with. It what didn't seem to be snobby, um, and it was a fast life based around Al. It wasn't like I'd come to America to work for a bank. It was never boring. Never boring. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. Yes, it was just crazy. But it was, you know, it was the duality of being a young man in a rock band, and being in america all together at the same time wow what what a trip what fun yes uh i really enjoyed it but you know i burned out very very quickly you know it all came to it didn't come to a grinding halt but it the life was precarious you know there wasn't a steady income there wasn't reliable band members there was al surrounded everything with this insanely dangerous drama all the time so, you know, yes. it was precarious you know it was not if i was looking for solidity it wasn't that that wasn't it <laughs> yeah i want to get into that part of the story but i want to save that for our next conversation because mm -hmm. of time restraints and putting the music wow. in we just talked, we went off on a tangent talking about the Swans, and earlier on we talked about uh, Mark Stewart. I want to throw a question at you that I, I threw out to my audience a couple of weeks ago. And that is, well, somebody wrote to me and asked me, what is the, the most essential album that anybody should have in their collection? This is such a difficult one to answer. It really is. I mean, I, I immediately said, I can think of at least 10 albums that should yeah. be in somebody's collection. Yeah. Narrowing it down to one is really difficult. But just for the sake of the show, I did narrow it down to one, um, and I've got plenty more. I said Marky e. Moon from television is essential in mm -hmm. anybody's collection. Well, I got a torrent of responses about that. People say, no, somebody said the Ramones' first album. Somebody said XTC. Another person said the Beach Boys' <laughs> Pet Sounds. It, it went on. I mean, this sort of, it's gone on and gone on. I think I've opened up a can of worms here. So I'm going to throw it out to you, Chris. It's a difficult one to answer on the spot. But is there well, one album? For you. Okay. I'm going to tell you because I've talked about it before and I talked, me and Bill Rieflin came up with this sort of desert island disc. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think everybody should own Trout Mask Replica. Ah, because yes. it's a double album. You'll never get bored of it, and you will hear something new every single time. It's like having a really yes. great and crazy book. I've yes. never grown tired of that record. <clears throat> You're right, of course. There are a million albums <laughs> that you could say that about, but if you 
if I suddenly was in a position to run out of the house and grab one, I've got a that very pressing of that record, and that would be the, that would be it. And plus, the cover is so fun too. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, great stuff. Chris, let's play a piece of music to take us out of this conversation. And then we're going to get back together again in a week or so. And we'll do round three of our ongoing conversation. Let's have a piece of music. All right. I think uh, you should play um, I Should Have Known Better by Wire. Oh, yes. First track on 154. Yes. Yes, indeed. What a good one. God, there's another essential album. Yes. I, I, uh. <laughs> My guest has been Chris Connolly, or actually is Chris Connolly. Uh, mm-hmm. This is part two of our ongoing conversations. It's sort of like a, I think I said this before, like a fireside chat, except we're a couple, you know, a few hundred miles away and we're just sort of <laughs> reminiscing. We're talking about music. We're talking about life. And next time we get together, we're going to talk about has things sort of progressed for Chris, the sort of the big, the big change, if you like, about the, the, what happened, what's the, and we're going to do that on our next conversation. To take us out, we're going to hear from Wire. I should have known better. Chris, an absolute pleasure, my friend, Absolutely. talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, man. Bye bye. Right. Right. Yeah. In an act of contrition, I lay down by your side. It's not your place to comment on my state of distress. For this is for real. I've tears in my eyes. Am I laughing or crying? I suggest I'm not lying. I haven't found a measure yet to calibrate my displeasure yet so to ignore my warning could be your folly the judgment is harsh I offer no plea valuing the vengeance which you treasure I've redefined the meaning of vendetta Sessions disordered. You protect your possessions in the light of your actions. I question your love. May I make an observation? Your bite is worse than my aggression. I should have known better
A big thank you to Chris Connolly for being so generous with his time. And thank you for listening. You can hear this edition and my other conversations with Chris Connolly at Anchor FM. You can also go to Mixcloud or any of the places you download your podcasts from. This edition will also air at our affiliate stations. All the details and outlets are listed at lifeelsewhere.co. Go there to learn more about the show, the guests, the music, and the books we feature. Oh, and do make sure you let me know what you think of Life Elsewhere. My email address comes up in the closing credits. Till next time, please be well, be safe, and I can't say it too often. Be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C-O. Mm-hmm.